0: Today we come to the seventh phrase in the Apostles' Creed. For those of you who haven't been here week by week, we're in the midst of a series of 12 teachings on the Apostles' Creed. Many of us grow up in church and we either hear about the Creed or we see the Creed and and yet we don't know some of the teachings that the Creed articulates. And because of this, it's helpful for us to examine what the Creed teaches. Um, That being said, because we're at this point, it may seem like a weird Easter message, but it's actually very fitting that we're discussing today the final judgment. That is the resurrection from the dead that takes place at the second coming of Christ and how that's related to the resurrection that Christ uh, accomplished 2000 years ago. That is, Christ is the first fruits of, of resurrection. That is, he was the first one to come forth, and we, when he comes back, we all shall raise with him. Um, we're going to look at a few elements of this today. The first thing that we're going to look at is the resurrection of the dead. We're going to look at the final judgment. That is what the Bible the Bible says that, you know, these verses that we just read uh what the Bible says concerning the end of all things or the end of this age, as it might be more appropriately put. We're going to look at a concept that may seem foreign to us growing up in Protestant or, or evangelical circles, that there actually is, according to the Bible, a judgment that God is going to judge you with based on your works. And we're going to see how that relates to what we all know and believe that I'm saved by grace through faith. And, um, this is, this is some pretty heady stuff. This is, this is, uh, stuff that you need to understand as a Christian, if you want to have great assurance of, of, of God's pardoning of you. And it's something that's often neglected in the Protestant church. It wasn't when the reformers broke away from the church initially, but over time it has, has fallen into, uh, just neglect, fallen into neglect. We're going to look at how the judgment according to works, while some, when they first learn of this, are very scared, it's actually the case that this judgment according to our works is supposed to produce in us an assurance of salvation rather than a fear, um, hopefully never producing some unnatural or unrighteous assurance, but rather an assurance that comes from God and the Holy Spirit. And then we'll look at, at finally how we know that we are children of God and how this is important for us. If we are to hear and learn from the scriptures that there's a, a judgment according to works, how we are to get through that uh, and still have our faith intact and not fall into a, a state where our conscience is going to be tormented. So he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Last week we talked about how Jesus Christ himself uh, ascended into the heavens and sits at the right hand of God. And the creed then says, not only has Jesus risen from the dead, which we celebrate today on Easter, he also ascended to the heavens, was glorified by God, and that glorification translated into the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church. And after this took place, the the creed just kind of pauses. There's this kind of interim time And then it goes and it it jumps all the way to the end of the age where it says, from thence, from that place, thence is kind of a weird word. It says, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The thence word, that that could be just retranslated as from there or from that place. So God as uh, Jesus, as king, is going to step down to the earth and judge the hearts of the dead and the living. And that is a terrifying thing indeed, but for the believer, it is a glorious and good thing. So resurrection from the dead, how does that work? Why is it, why is it fitting that we're talking about this on Easter Sunday? Well, our resurrection from the dead uh, that will come about at the end of the age, biblically is directly tied to the fact that Christ himself was risen. And so his resurrection is actually a guarantee not only because of his physical, uh, spiritual conquering of death, but also because of the words that he spoke. So how does this work biblically? Hebrews 9 has been a... Uh, we've we've spent a lot of time in the book of Hebrews the last few weeks, and there's a very good reason because Hebrews is a very important book. It says in Hebrews 9, verses 12 and 15, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, it says that he went in and secured an eternal redemption. That is, this redemption is going to last for all time. This, this redemption that Christ has purchased for us will not pass away. It will not fade away. It will not diminish over time. But then it goes on to say that the reason he did this is so that you and I, the, those who ha- have heard the gospel, those who will hear the gospel, that they can also be in the place of an eternal inheritance. Well, what is that eternal inheritance? The internal inheritance is the experience of the eternal or the new covenant. So, so Jesus says that uh, this is eternal life. That they know me and the one who sent me. That is, Jesus said eternal life isn't just going to heaven, but eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Jesus and knowing the Father through Jesus. And so, if if we are to rightly understand verse 15 it says he he did this he's the mediator of this new covenant or he established the new covenant so that we would receive the eternal inheritance that was promised in the old covenant so this eternal redemption has been purchased by his blood we celebrated uh privately not together we didn't gather on good friday hopefully on good friday you at least took some time to think about the lord's suffering but on that day he died and spilled his blood not only on a cross in Jerusalem, but the scriptures say that he went in in the spirit into the holy place in heaven in the heavenlies and spilled his blood uh, in in that place that is he made a propitiation or a a favorability uh, by God possible for us, so his death brought about the forgiveness of sins. Well, what good is that? If I just, you know, I can go through life and I'll die. And then, you know, I'm kind of dead and I don't experience life. Well, his death not only brought about the forgiveness of sins, but it also guaranteed and secured our, uh, our raising from the dead. That is the eternal redemption was brought about to secure the eternal covenant. So if that's true, which Hebrews 9, 12 and 15 says is true, what is this eternal covenant? Hebrews 8, 7 through 9 says, for if that first covenant, this is talking about the old covenant system, um, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them. When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So God's saying that this old covenant is going to to pass away. Verse nine, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Okay, so this is the old covenant. God does something. He, he accomplishes a miraculous redemption of the people of Israel, pulls them out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery, and establishes a covenant with them. He gives them a set of laws and guidelines by which they're to live and establish the, the nation of Israel, and then they turn away from his laws. This is, this is the old covenant. It's not that they just didn't accomplish the law. They completely abandoned the law. And uh, verse verse nine concludes: For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse ten: For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So there's a there's a covenant coming after the old covenant. I will put my laws into their minds. So he, God's going to not just take the law and give it to the nation. He's going to take the law and put it on the individual's minds. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one, his neighbor and each one, his brother saying, "Know the Lord. Now, this is not to say that we don't have use of discipleship in the new covenant, that is, the church still teaches and preaches, and this is a good thing. This isn't saying that each, uh, y- you'll have no need of teaching, but rather that each person in this new nation, this new people of God that he is setting up, uh, each one of them will know the Lord. They'll have, a, they'll have a relationship with God, and they won't have to go through a high priest other than Christ. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So not only is God going to enable us to do the law, he's also going to uh, pardon us when we mess up, when we sin. When we transgress the law, God said, I will blot out their iniquities. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the Hebrew writer is saying the uh, old covenant system of sacrifices is about to go away and the church is about to explode on the scene here. And here's the reason why, because of the eternal covenant that's been unfolded by Jesus's death and resurrection. So, this eternal covenant is a great and glorious thing. In the old covenant, we were put under laws that uh, kept us in submission and magnified sins. That is, we had no knowledge that the things that we were doing were evil. Then the law came, God spoke his word, which it was, that law was good. He spoke his word and demonstrated to us that we could not fulfill the law. And so the eternal covenant is a transition. God's saying, I'm not just going to give you the law to show you your need for, for Christ. I'm also going to put the law into your hearts and I'm going to write it in your mind. That is, you're going to know what's good and what is evil. God's going to give you the knowledge that comes from the eternal covenant. That is, you'll know his will. So what's another way to look at the eternal covenant? Well, um, Another way is in Jeremiah thirty-two forty. So this eternal covenant, Hebrews is quoting this verse, but this verse says it another way. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. So God's never going to turn away from you and he's never going to abandon you. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So this isn't just, this eternal covenant isn't just you know, we're, we hear that Jesus died and then we're back under the law, unable to do it. We hear that Jesus died, completely fulfilled the law, made a sacrifice that turned God favorably to us, and he puts his spirit in us. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 sums up the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. And it, it finalizes, this is a grand conclusion that the Hebrew writer, after explaining the fact that the old covenant wasn't sufficient, that the people of God uh, needed a better covenant, that Jesus is the one who came and did this for us, that he established righteousness was crucified, resurrected, and one day will bring us back to life through him. And then he says, what's the outcome of hearing this? Well, the outcome is this. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, period. There's a period right there. Uh, The verse continues, the thoughts all tied together. But the words by the blood of the eternal covenant modify the the first part of that sentence is that the blood of the eternal covenant was the thing that by which God, the father raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 21 continues. It says, may he equip you with every good thing that you may do his will working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. So he's not just going to equip you with uh, knowledge of his will, or, or material possessions if you're going to be a missionary or support of a spiritual family like the church he's going to give you every good thing so for, for for what so that he would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight so god's not just giving you this stuff that whether it's the ability to create wealth through a business or the ability to uh, be a member of a church he's not just giving you these Physical now graces, so you can just enjoy them and do life how you want he's giving them for a purpose, so that he would work in us that is god's going to do the work in us it's not just me working on my own, but it's God working in and through me well what's the outcome of Jesus being the guarantor of our faith? The outcome is that he won't ever leave us or abandon us, and that includes abandoning a, abandoning abandoning us to the grave. John six thirty nine 39 through uh, 40 and verse 44 says, and this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking that I should lose nothing of all that the father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is amazing. Jesus is saying, not only is the eternal covenant, which was promised by Jeremiah going to come to pass through me, but he's also saying, I'm also going to raise you up on the last day. And verse 44 echoes this and says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So if you've come to know Jesus Christ as your savior and your Lord and your king, as your precious treasure, that has happened because the father has drawn you to Jesus. And Jesus says, of those who the Father draws, I will lose none of them. Not one person, not one believer who has truly come to Jesus will ever be turned away from God. Now, here is where this kind of gets muddy. How do I know if I've truly come to Jesus? We're going to get to that. But before we uh, get there, we need to discuss what this concept is, the point of today's message, this idea that there's a final judgment. Um, have you ever read these verses? Have you ever read 2 Corinthians 5 or Romans 2 and, and thought to yourself, well, wait, it sounds like I'm going to be judged after I'm resurrected and you know when everyone's judged, how is that going to work if I've already passed out of death and into life now? Have you ever wondered that? So some people have wondered that. Uh, it's, you should know. You should know how this works. And you should know how this works so that you can give... A defense against those who would call themselves believers who but are outwardly living terrible lives filled with sin and and evil, and you should call them to repentance because if you don't know that God is going to judge you by your works uh, if if you don't know how that works, if you don't know how that fits with the idea that we 're saved by grace, if you don't know what i 'm going to you know explain later, you may be tempted to just dismiss it when people are walking around in your life or people you know who who live in an evil way or do the, do the deeds of evil or the deeds of Satan. If they're doing that and you as a believer don't know that it's actually God's will that they turn from sin, then you won't have boldness by which, you know, the Lord would probably speak to that person and call them to repentance. And you also won't know how to guard over your own heart uh, in the midst of your time on the earth. So he won't leave you in the grave. And when he pulls you up from the grave, he won't resurrect you or he won't, he won't reject you. So when, when you're pulled up from the grave, that is when, when, when Jesus comes back and the final judgment of the earth comes, uh, comes to pass, if you have called on Jesus and completely abandoned your trust Uh, To him, that is, you have no trust in yourself, but you fully rely on Jesus. His word says that he won't neglect you. So, if that's the case, we should have confidence when we're discussing this next thing that we're going to be judged at the end of the age um, and we're going to be rewarded and given the rewards of our deeds. So, the final judgment Um, there's some things that in our culture we've just kind of neglected. Um, oftentimes we pray, this is kind of a sidebar. we pray, dear Jesus, but jesus 's point of coming to the earth was to show us that you have a relationship with the Father, and he you know he says here 's how you should pray, you should pray our father so so just like that, uh, many of us think that God the Father is going to be doing the judgment at the end of the age. It says in the scriptures that Jesus is the one who judges. And why is that good news? Well, it's good news because uh, in contrast to all of the other judges of the earth, all of the courts that um, may have been established in this, in this age, all of the uh, kings and the rulers who have lived in an evil way and ruled over their lands in, in evil ways, all of those judgments will be superseded and overturned if they are not righteous judgments at the final judgment of all things. That is, Jesus Christ will right every wrong at the judgment seat and that all accounts will be paid in full either by being placed by faith on Christ in his death, burial and resurrection or in the lake of fire. And because of this, we should have confidence and uh, no assurance should be shaken by, by coming to understand that the Bible actually teaches that you will be saved uh, or you are saved by faith and that you're judged according to works. There's two separate words there. It's not that you're just going to show up to the judgment seat and say, Jesus, I accepted you at a Billy Graham crusade, and that's why you should let me into heaven. Jesus is going to say, um, here are the deeds you did on the earth, and is there any evidence that I knew you? And and that's actually how the judgment works. Well, how how is he going to judge the earth. He's going to judge it in righteousness. And how is he going to judge us? Um, he's going to judge us by our deeds. In Acts 17, Paul is, is talking to the, to the Greeks and he explains to them what he saw in the temple in Athens. He says that, uh, that the thing that you you worship, the unknown God, I'm going to tell you about him. And then he goes on to say, in Acts 17, 29 through 31, being then God's offspring, that is all people come from God. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. See, they had all these idols set up in this temple and the Greeks, they worship the gods through you know, various sacrifices and giving money and things like this. And, and Paul comes and says, you don't know God at all. And he says that God is not an idol. In verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance, that is when, when people didn't know that God had declared himself through the express image of the person of Jesus walking on the earth, demonstrating who the father was, because they didn't know this, they were in idolatry. Now that this has taken about Verse 30 says that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, now after Jesus has died and been resurrected, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Why should you repent? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. That is, God the Father is going to judge the world by the judgment of his son, so so Jesus is doing the judgment. God the Father is involved, and and uh, he's been appointed to this place of honor by the Father. So he he's been appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says that the resurrection of the dead, that, that, that Christ, when he raised from the dead, when he took his life back up, God's, Paul is saying that that proves that Jesus is the judge of the whole earth. Now, I don't fully understand how that works, but it's biblical and it's amazing and it should at least call us to uh, sobriety. So this is good news for us, because in contrast to all the other judges of the earth, Jesus, we know, is a righteous judge, and he will judge righteously. So if he is the judge, what type of judgment is he going to be making? Well, we read that in our scripture readings today. In 2 Corinthians five, ten: For we must all appear, all of us, you will appear, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one, every single person, may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, how do you reconcile that with we're saved by faith through Christ? We're going to get to that. This can be confusing. And if it is confusing to you, the enemy has a place which he will try to uh, speak into your life doubts about the goodness of God and the gospel. Romans 2, 6 through 11, we, we already read this. I'm going to reread it so that we can step through it. Romans 2, 6 through 11 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the jew first and also the greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the jew first and also the greek for god shows no partiality what what he's saying in romans 2 there is whether you go to church or not whether you're a jew or a greek whether you uh whether you like you know just attend these religious services or identify yourself as ethnically being jewish or ethnically being white, or ethnically being black, none of that is going to matter at the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to judge you by your works, not your religious affiliation. So good works are necessary in the Christian life. And in saying they're, they're necessary in the Christian life, what do we mean? In saying this, are we denying that we're saved by grace through faith? Not at all. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 cannot be undone by Romans 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace, you have been saved. This is a past tense salvation. So Paul is saying you have been justified. This is a present reality for you. You have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. So no matter what you learn today, You cannot come to believe that you'll be judged at the second coming and be saved by your works alone. You're not saved by your works. You're judged by your works. And there's a difference. It's subtle, but it's important. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. That is, we didn't create ourselves. We didn't fashion this Christian life on our own. God is the one who put us together. He is the master carpenter who has fashioned. We're his workmanship, Paul says. We're not the result of our own seeking God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um it's often thought that, uh, you know, you can, it's often thought and taught today that you can accept the Lord into your heart at an altar call. And that is like that the, you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. And that's just not true. The Bible says that you do not get saved by saying a prayer. It says that you get saved by being born again. And that comes about by the work of the Holy Spirit producing a new creation in you, when you hear the gospel that Christ totally took all of the wrath and pain that you deserved, he stepped into your place, took it for you and is now offering you grace and life and, and coming to trust him that, that coming to trust Jesus that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. We call that the new birth. So, you can't just show up at an altar call and say a sinner's prayer and assume that the new birth has taken place in your life. There can be no assumption in the scripture. This is why the scripture includes 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 2. It wants to warn us against those who would try to convince us otherwise. Good works are not the way that you get saved. When, when when you hear today that you will be judged at the second coming by Christ, according to your works, do not hear. Do not hear that you are saved by those works. You are not saved by those works at all, but rather good works are the evidence by which it is demonstrated that you are a child of God because children always do What their father's desires are. In John 8, Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees, and he said to them, This is pretty intense. They're the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus, being very bold, says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is telling the religious people that they are of the devil. And so, woe is us if we just idly sit by in church day to day, week by week, and assume that we are right with God just by going to church or just by being a Christian, so to speak without the full assurance that comes by faith through the the whisper of the Holy Spirit assuring you that you're a child of God and the evidence which plainly demonstrates whether you are or you are not. So the question is, okay, you've convinced me, John, The Bible says I'm going to be judged according to good works. What are these good works? How do they come about? How is this good news? It kind of sounds like we're back under law again. Uh, This is, you know, some of you might be thinking, this is terrible. I know my works. This is not good at all. Well, this doesn't reintroduce law. You're not involved in your final pardon. It is all by faith. Judgment according to works does not reintroduce law because the promise that God will produce good deeds in you is a part and central message of the gospel, okay? So it's not just that uh, God announces to you through a minister that Jesus Christ died on your behalf and then you just continue to live and it doesn't change your life from that moment. When you come to faith, your life is changed. And so the spirit is given to you so that you would walk in the statutes and commandments of God. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six through twenty seven also speaks about the uh, the new te- the new covenant. It says in verse twenty six, uh, this is God speaking of what's going to happen after the people of Israel are dispersed and then gathered uh, by the, the the ministry that goes about in the New Testament, um, not the nation of Israel but the people of God. He says, "I will give you a new heart." And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, the sin that we've been looking at the last few weeks in this series, the sin that came through Adam, that sin trapped us under an uh, inability. That is, we, we fell. We, our ability to do good was completely destroyed. And the image of God in us, although still existing, was marred. And we were uh, damaged so that we would not live in the way that God. Had uh, desired for us to live. God created the world and it was good, and He created the garden and set up a place for Adam and Eve to live in the garden and to exercise dominion over the earth on His behalf. And in that exercising of dominion over the earth, God also wanted communion with Adam and Eve. That is, God the Father, uh, God wanted children he wanted those who would be in his image and and those who he could commune with because God is love and love always overflows and uh, produces more and so because God wanted children he set up their their nature he set up human nature with the capacity for communion and spiritual fellowship with the father and that was totally destroyed in the fall and so what God is saying in the promise of the new covenant is I'm not just going to give you a set of laws, which you won't be able to uh, uphold or, or do. I'm going to actually put in you a heart of flesh and remove that sinful heart of stone that you have come to have. In verse 27, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is a recreation. If you remember when God uh, breathed, it, when God formed Adam, after he had formed him, he then breathed into Adam. And God again is saying that this new creation, this new covenant is going to take place and he's gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God's gonna make this possible again for us. It's not that we were are now going to still strive and do good things as we may have tried to do before coming to the knowledge of saving faith. So the gospel of God is concerned with the restoration of all of creation. You can think of, of this as, as the restoration or a first fruits of what's going to come about in the, in the next age. That is the age to come, which is at the end of the creed. We, we won't talk about it right now. Um, but, This is our walk, the gospel walk, where we walk by faith and making it our aim to please God. These good works that are necessary for us to provide evidence by which we can truly claim to be children of God. This uh, takes place and is a first fruits or a, a small demonstration of what's going to take place at the restoration of all things when Uh, The Lord brings heaven and earth and sums up everything in Jesus. And so these good works that we do, these aren't the the God-appeasing type of works. These are good works in that we just do them. They are the outflow of our desires. The gospel is about the forgiveness of sins, and the gospel announces that we stand before God in Christ, the righteous one, now. It says, you are saved, you have been saved by faith. That's a past tense. So if you if you know you've been saved by faith, how do you deal with the fact that you're going to be judged later according to your works? Of course, all of our works that we have done are tainted by our prior sins, our continuing sins, the remnants of the flesh in us. And of course, our works are only acceptable if they're done in and by Christ. And that being said, is, but the reality is, however, even though that's true, is that our good works are really acceptable and we really do good works. We're not just puppets. We really are involved because God is at work in us to do his will. It's not just that God is kind of like, you know, we're not just automatons and he's kind of pulling the strings and pushing the buttons behind the scenes. He has recreated you the old has passed away. The new has come. He has recreated you to live like he wanted you to live before the fall. And there's a tension in this. We, we still die because sin has, has somewhat tarnished this physical frame. And there's still evil out in the world. But for you, for the believer who has totally put his or her trust in Christ, you are supposed to be walking in newness of life. The good news is not just that Christ died on the cross, but also that Christ, the righteous one, will by the power of the Spirit renew us in righteousness. And it's not just about tablets of stone, but rather having his word and his law written on our hearts. So the doctrine of the union of Christ is the means by which we come to have assurance and not ever fear that we'll be sort of saved now and then judged and deemed unrighteous then. This has a few important implications for us. It means, first of all, that our works are just as a matter of grace through faith as our right standing by God. That is, you can't just go off and do these works uh, apart from having faith in Christ. And so this, this thing that we're talking about today is not just Um, that you're going to be saved by works. You're kind of temporarily saved by faith now. And then later you're going to be, God's going to like pull the rug out from under you and now say, I'm now judging you by what you've done. Rather the judgment that God makes is a demonstration to all of uh, Satan, the demonic kingdom, all principalities and powers that Paul talks about all, all of those who have lived on the earth. He will demonstrate openly that this, is the righteous behavior of God's children, and this is the evil behavior of those who are of the devil and are children of the devil. So God promises to produce his good fruit in us, and this is not just our own doing. In Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul is telling the Philippians, now that I'm gone, now that my ministry team has left and there's a church at Philippi, uh, now that I've left, continue to do good and to work out your salvation. That word in the Greek is, is a very tricky word to get right. It actually means, some people have translated it, bring about, which sounds almost heretical. That, that is, we bring about our own salvation. But it, it means work out or, or, or take it to its logical conclusion. If all these things have been set up by God, then, then sum it up by uh, fear and trembling. Um, for it is God who works in you. It's not you doing this on your own, both to will, that is God gives you the desire, and to work, God gives you the grace or the power or the ability to do the things for his good pleasure. So there's many images and parables you can think of when you think of an unrepentant uh, Christian Uh, that is a Christian who professes a faith in Christ, but outwardly he's doing, uh, he's practicing evil, not just occasional sins. We're not talking about some strict legalism where you can't, uh, you know, make any mistake and there's no grace in God. Rather, this is not the practice of a believer. So you can think of good works as just being kingdom behavior. That is, we are. we we've talked about how Christ transferred us out of death and into life. And now these good works are just behaving within the regulations of the kingdom. Christ is the king and he rules his kingdom uh, for the church by his spirit. And if, this is just the natural outflow of what it means to be in his kingdom. You can also think of this as with Christ and the bride. That is, the church does these things. And it's just natural for her because she's in love with her husband, Christ. You can also think of it as serving the master. Jesus said that you're no longer slaves, but you're my friends. For slaves don't know what the father is doing, but now I call you my friends. And then he goes on to say that uh, you're not greater than than me. um, And when you do something, you should only consider it to be uh, what you're required to do. That is, the good works are just normal for servants. That is, servants don't go around constantly overthrowing and rebelling against their master. Probably all of those are great, but the most clear biblical image for us to come to a resolution on this idea that you're going to be judged according to your works is that this is the natural outward working, the outflow of what it means to be a child of God. This, we're we're sons and daughters, the scriptures say, of the living God, not the God of the dead. And so we are alive in him and we are his sons and his daughters. And we're going to close with 1 John and then um, take communion. 1 John 3, this really is the summation of all these ideas. See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called Children of God, and this is the this is the assurance uh instilling phrase in this chapter, and so we are the writer John uh, John the Revelator when he 's writing this, has no doubt that the people he 's writing to are true believers. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, beloved, we are god's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him. So when you come to know that you're judged according to your works, you you have to reconcile that with this, that we know, we have faith, we have knowledge that when he appears, we're going to be like him. We won't be found as being contrary. We won't be found as being children of the devil. Verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. This is the, the, the litmus test for you. If you really do, if, you're not, if your faith is authentic, if it's not just some religious thing that you're doing, if you really have the hope of seeing Jesus at the end of the age as he comes back to bring the kingdom to the Father, that is, he, he, he's called his people, he's prepared them, he's pulled them out of the world of sin. When, if you really have hope in that, Here's the test. You're purifying yourself. This is, it is your, in Romans 2, it says, we make this our aim. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. That's that's some pretty intense language. If you are continually sinning in a way that isn't congruous with what you read Paul's warnings about, you should wonder if you really know him. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This isn't talking about individual mistakes and sins that you then repent of. This is talking about hardened, unrepentant, calloused conscience sinning that goes on day by day. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever, practice right, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, so this is, this, he's saying, here's the evidence that you know that you are in right standing by God. You're currently seeking him still. If you aren't currently seeking him still, if you're not purifying yourself, you should have cause for concern as to if you really know him. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, this is the point of the gospel. Many of us think that what I am saying is new, The point of the gospel is that we would do good works. He says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that includes unrepentant sinning. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed. That word is literally God's word or the gospel abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that we are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever practices righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So let's pray.